Today on the Ward Preacher Podcast, the Prince of Peace whips merchants in the temple, the greatest teacher obfuscates his message, and then he gives it directly. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Ward Preacher Podcast. All right. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to the Ward Preacher Podcast. Today we will be starting our Come Follow Me uh, studies in John chapter 2. We will be covering John 2, 3, and 4. We're obviously not going to cover every little detail. That would take way longer than this podcast. Uh, So please make sure that you're studying on your own. Um, we are going to start not with the uh, water into wine in Cana. Uh, we're going to start with the first cleansing of the temple. Uh, this comes from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And it reads, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it is written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. All right. Kind of bold. So a couple of questions come up. Jesus is obviously very concerned about the temple, and maybe that's a little bit confusing. After all, the law of Moses was about to be fulfilled. One of the key components um, that we see, particularly in the epistles of Paul, is how Jesus fulfilled a lot of the Old Testament practices. Uh, Animal sacrifice, which was one of the primary activities done at the temple, no longer necessary. And so if the temple was about to become obsolete, why would Jesus care so much about defending it? Uh, It seems like that could be something that, you know, this was just kind of fading away, and he could bring something new. Uh, Of course, uh, if we are a little more careful in our study of the scriptures, we can realize that temples are not being done away with. In fact, John, the author of this gospel, also wrote in his Apocalypse, the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, um, that there would be a, a temple there in Jerusalem, this was not just a, a new or an Old Testament thing, rather, but this is a new thing associated with the time of the two witnesses who will die and rise again shortly before Jesus' second coming. You can read about that at the beginning of Revelation chapter 11. Um, well, the beginning and the end refer to seeing the temple. Um, so obviously, Temples are still important. Um, Also, uh, 
Old Testament prophecies that are going to be fulfilled around the same time, the last days and the second coming of Christ, also refer to the house of the Lord. Uh, consider Isaiah chapter 2, uh, being established in the tops of the mountains, the mountain of the Lord, a clear reference to the temple. Or in Malachi 3, that the Lord will come suddenly to his temple. Uh, or the messenger coming suddenly to his temple. That's um, a clear reference to things that are happening in the last days, not during his first coming here. So temples are still important. They represent, as they always have, the effort that people take to go to God of course, in very Old Testament times, they would climb mountains, Moses ascending Horeb uh, or, or other prophets doing similar. Uh, Elijah also went up to Horeb to hear not the fire or the wind or the earthquake, but the still small voice of the Lord. It was an effort to go to God. Um, and the temple, the edifice that was built, represented the same idea. Uh, and to this day represents the same idea. For some, it's just, you know, a nice building. But uh, it's meant to be a place where we can go to God. It's not meant to be like other buildings. And that's why Jesus referred to it as his father's house. It's not a house of merchandise. You have other places to do business. And I think that brings up something that's important. We're talking about what exactly did the merchants do that was so bad? Because there's nothing wrong with working even for profit. Carpentry, fishing, farming, these are marketable skills that were important during the, the life and ministry of Christ to either him, his family, or his apostles. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of those professions. You you should work um, and, and earn. What's problematic is profiting from God, from particularly the things that God wants to give freely. Consider Isaiah 55.1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come by wine and milk without money and without price. This is an allusion to the availability of God's saving grace. This isn't meant to be expensive. You have no money. It doesn't cost anything. The gift is free. Um, and so people that get caught up in, well, you know, I've got a I'll I'll share the message of God, but I've still got to provide for myself. It leads to kind of a difficult temptation to preach for money. Um, and when that trend is accepted, it leads to another trend, which was warned about in the Book of Mormon. Here's what Helaman says. But behold, if a man shall come among you and shall say, Do this, and there is no iniquity. Do that, and ye shall not suffer. Yea, he will say, Walk after the pride of your own hearts. Yea, walk after the pride of your eyes, and do whatsoever your heart desireth. 
And if a man shall come among you and say this, he will receive him and say that he is a prophet. And ultimately, that's Helaman 13.27, by the way. Ultimately, the idea is those are the people with the, with the good messages that then get the money. So when people are motivated to share because it's going to get the money, you also have to be concerned about what is the message that's being shared. I think that's important. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, our clergy do not receive money. Uh, bishops who put in tons of hours, teachers and leaders of various organizations that put in a lot of effort and work, they get no money from it. That's also been an important thing for me with this podcast, that I'm getting no money from it. I have no revenue, and if anything were to come in, um, it would be immediately donated. Uh, I, I, this is not for profit at all, and that was important for me. Um, I think it's also significant as any person who is seeking for truth uh, should look at, you know, what's the motivation here? Is it to help people go to God? Um, there's also the, uh, in terms of Jesus making a whip and beating people, even though he's the Prince of Peace, uh, there's an important conversation to be had there with what that means. Of course, Jesus loves everyone, but he doesn't enable them. He also, um, even though he accepts people, it's not necessarily as they are. His is an invitation to be better. Of course, people have value in and of themselves, but the idea isn't to stay as we are. It's to be like him. That is why he taught the whole idea behind this whole curriculum. Come, follow me. Uh, so important as we look at the gospel message that sometimes... Love is tough. All right, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, member of the Sanhedrin, um, but he comes at night, uh, and and the reasons are not divulged specifically. It's possible to infer things, but I'm not going to do that. Nicodemus comes tonight and acknowledges to Jesus that uh, he, he believes the source of Jesus's power is God, that no one can do these miracles except God be with him, and that he wants to hear his teaching. And Jesus, even though here's a willing person who's, who seems to believe and wants to hear, he really obfuscates what he has to say. He immediately says, oh, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God, except a man be born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The wind goeth where it listeth. You can hear the sound, but not know the source or the destination. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And he goes into this thing about how men love darkness more than light. A little obfuscated there. Um, Ultimately, he does, uh, in spite of the obfuscation, he does have one direct verse, well, more than one, but one particular verse, which is 
probably the most famous of all verses in the Bible, and uh, we have to do that. We have to do this verse. It's verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, of course, amongst all of the other things, Nicodemus is still a little bit confused. And he asks, you know, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall, ye, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Um, I think that's a confusing statement, because it seems like Nicodemus was there accepting the message. But, uh, of course, Jesus' purpose in teaching was not always to satisfy curiosity. In fact, it was never that. Sometimes he would indulge people and tell them things, but that was never really his drive. That's never his main purpose. It was to get people to be better, to look at things from a new perspective, to become new. And that's exactly what he's talking about with a lot of these principles. To be born of water, he's not just talking about, oh yeah, just make sure you receive baptism. Had he said that, a person might think, oh, well, I can just receive that ordinance and check a box. I'm good. But that's not what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to truly be born again, become new put aside our old ways of thinking and being and become a new person. Being born of the Spirit, not just receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, but viewing others and ourselves through his perspective. Uh, the whole idea with the Spirit like the wind. Of course, the Spirit knows where he is going, but those who are not in tune with him, it does seem like it can be mysterious. You might be able to hear the sound of the wind, but you don't really know where it's coming from or where it's going, where it will stop. Uh, if you're in tune with the Spirit, it seems a lot less like the wind. Uh, seeking truth. This whole idea, all of these principles, seeking the truth, it means admitting difficult things about ourselves. It's not just asking. Diligent asking means admitting things like, I am a sinner. I am prideful. I am wrong. I need help. And once the truth, uh, once the truth is found, uh, it, it can also be difficult. It means holding on to that truth. Popular ideas might be wrong. What culture thinks is not necessarily what culture thinks is not necessarily based on the truth. And other people who love mistruths are completely opposed to those who align themselves with truth and light. This whole idea about men who love darkness because uh, 
of their sins. They want to hide things. And you see all of this, uh, you know, Hollywood culture where the things have been hidden for a long time, these abuse allegations that you hear about in the news. Um, and it comes from this wanting to put on a show, a performance. The truth is not about that. It's about being genuine, and it's hard. Um, and it can alienate you from people, which is also a tough lesson to hear. Okay, uh, moving on. Chapter 4 of John. Uh, he goes to a woman at the well, a Samaritan. This one is a little bit different. The Samaritan does not actually seek out Christ. She just happens to be at the well, and he asks her for water. Jesus asks her for water, and uh, he gets in a conversation with her about living water, and he explains to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So this kind of interesting idea. It is, uh, she is confused and she wants to, oh yeah, give me this water. And he tells her to go and get her husband. And she says, oh, I have no husband. But he knows. Uh, the dialogue continues. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou saidest truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. You think? <laughs> you think? He knew exactly what her situation was. Uh, she did have someone, and he wanted them to hear the truth. Uh, eventually their, their conversation continues, and she talks about her belief. She says, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Uh, that blatant honesty kind of prompts a question. Why would he openly tell this Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah, but not others of the Jews who came to him? Um, for example, if we look back like at the end of John 2, uh, it talks about uh, a little bit of his motivation here. Uh, and I think it also gives us some insight in answering that question. Uh, this is John chapter 2, verses 23 and 20 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. I think that's the idea. Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. He could tell what they were thinking and also what they needed, even when they themselves might not. 
And I think that makes a huge difference in his different styles of approaching people. Some people needed the whip. Some people needed to be forced to think a little bit harder and deeper. And some people just needed to hear it. They kind of understood some of what was going on, and they just needed to hear the truth. I think that's important because no one at that final judgment day is going to be in a position where they'll say, well, you know, he didn't, no one told me. You know, it might not come the same as it comes for other people, but everyone is given a unique opportunity to understand and accept Jesus Christ. It will come in a way that is appropriate. It's it is a valid choice. We are all free to choose to accept or reject him, just as the people who were living during his mortal ministry. Um, ultimately, all of this, I think, goes to show that God knows what is best. Uh, sometimes it means being assertive. Sometimes it's obfuscating and, and making people study and learn themselves, and sometimes it is being direct. I think all of those uh, examples in the scriptures can find application with us. Even sometimes the same person might, at different points in their life, receive these messages in different ways. And understanding how God talks to people, how Jesus communicates, I think is vital for us learning to recognize his voice through the scriptures, and through his prophets, and through the Holy Spirit, uh, even today. Uh, hopefully, as we continue our studies, as we try and press forward, uh, these things of the Spirit will seem less mysterious, like the source and destination of the wind. We can learn to harmonize to be with it, to let it move us. And as we follow it, we will find that living water that will well inside of us as a well that springs to everlasting life. May we learn in spirit and in truth. We appreciate everyone's support for the Word Preacher podcast. Uh, please continue studying independently and uh, study with us. Uh, next week, we will go into the one of the greatest things in the entire New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. We will be beginning the Sermon on the Mount, also Luke 6. Um, so please keep up with your reading. Uh, and uh, of course, as always, fight on. Thank you.